Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, let's turn to our, in our Bibles to Hosea. As we said last week, the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 2 tonight. Hosea chapter 2. I tried to cover three chapters last week. I made it through one. Tonight, I'm making no predictions. There was a researcher from the University of Washington named Thomas Holmes. Thomas Holmes has studied stress. You want to know what he found out about it? We all have it, first of all. There's good and bad stress. Everybody has it. Life is filled with it. However, he decided to measure stress in what he called life change units. And he assigned a certain number of units to different things people go through in life. Now he said that if you get over 300 points in a 12-month period, you're facing a nervous breakdown. So consider some of these. Marriage is worth 50 life change units, he calls them. 50. Divorce will get you 73. The death of a spouse adds up to a whopping 100 life change units. Pregnancy will give you 40. Marital separation from your mate, 65. Death of a close family member, 63. Major personal injury or illness, 53. Vacation, 13. (laughs) And Christmas will give you 12. So those can also be stressful times, even though they're meant to be family-oriented and relaxing. Well, you know, I wonder about Hosea. I mean, how many he faced and had because of the kind of stress that God allowed him, in fact, even prescribed for him to go through. The kind of marriage he had, not only getting married, but God said, marry a woman who's a prostitute, knowing she's going to go out on you, and I still, even in that condition, want you to love her and take care of her. Incredible. Well, we've been looking at this book. We've discovered that it's a pageant. And if chapter 1 is a pageant of rejected love, then chapters 2 and 3 is a pageant of recovered love. And both of those themes run through chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's a pageant in that God was basically saying to this prophet, Hosea, you're going to play a role. And the role that you play is a picture of the role that I play. You're going to play me in this pageant. And you're going to love a woman who's unfaithful because that's the kind of love I have for people. And Gomer, your wife, I know that's a weird name as we noted last week. Gomer is going to play the part of the children of Israel who have been unfaithful to me. They've gone out on me. They haven't been sacred to the relationship that we have. It's a spiritual object lesson because God's people went out on God and started dating, if you will, other foreign gods. Well, the minor prophets, there are 12 of them. We noted just briefly last week that 
They're short books, but they have a lot to say. And they're called minor prophets, but don't be fooled by size. A size can be misleading. Example, one single shot of espresso can pack so much punch in it, and you can take a single shot of espresso any day to a standard full eight-ounce cup of coffee, and that cup of espresso will you'll take off. Size can be misleading. Cell phones is another example. Notice how they're getting smaller. And I had the first cell phone. It was like this big. You'd carry it around in a wagon. Now they're so small, it's like, hello? Can you hear me now? And, and, the, and the, recep- the reception's better. And they have cameras and video machines and ovens. They have so many features in them now. They're small, but they're very, very powerful. Here's another example, breath mints. I've had, my mom used to have these big honking breath mints. They were huge. But again, if you go to places like Starbucks and get these tiny little mints, you look at it and think, this can't do much. Try one. It's like a dose of green chili in a mint. (laughs) It'll light up your life. Well, one of the things we noticed about Hosea as a prophet is that part of his ministry was not just declaration, but demonstration. As we've already said, he was in a pageant, a play. He was not only saying something about God, he was acting it out so that he would feel what God feels and others would understand the lesson more poignantly. So he becomes a pedagogical teacher. That is, he actually lives out the lesson, not just spews out the lesson. He's living it out so that he would feel what God feels. Well, we made it through, as we said, chapter 1, and we noticed something if you look at the very end of chapter 1, that the chapter concludes with five promises or five great blessings that God promises to the nation of Israel in the future. National increase was the first promise, verse 10. He says, the number of the children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea. Number two, a national conversion, also in verse 10, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Third great promise or great blessing is a national reunion. Verse 11, the children of Judah, it says, and of the children of Israel, they shall be gathered together. These Nations that were once split historically into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes, God says, I'll bring them back together and there will be a unified whole that represents all of the tribes. Number four, God promises national leadership. Also in verse 11, and I will appoint, they will appoint for themselves one head, one head. And then finally, national restoration, and that takes us into chapter 2, verse 1. And as we mentioned last week, chapter 2, verse 1 belongs in chapter 1. And we talked about chapter divisions, that they're not necessarily inspired. And chapter 2, at least the thought break, occurs in verse 2. But look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We now get into a uh, denunciatory section of the book. It's denunciatory, but it's also conciliatory. See, God's going to do a couple of things, and we'll notice this frequently in the Minor Prophets. He'll point the finger, and then He'll open His embrace. He'll say, you did this wrong, and that wrong, and the other wrong, and then He'll open up His arms and say, and you know what? 
I'm willing to wipe it all clean, give you a brand new start, and make you my people once again. So in verse 1, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Now, you need to understand a little bit of last week's lesson to get verse 1. Hosea and Gomer had three kids. And God even gave them the names. The first child was named Jezreel, which means sown or scattered to the wind. God says, I'm going to scatter the people of Israel like the wind would scatter them. And he was speaking of the Assyrian captivity that would come in 722 B.C. Jezreel was child number one. Child number two was named Lo-Ruhamah, which means unpitied by a father or no mercy. Number three child was Lo-Ami, which means not mine or not my people. Now, talk about having uh, a bummer on your first day of school when everybody's name is given. These poor kids on their first day of school are to say, my name is scattered to the wind and over here is no mercy and this is not mine. Or unpitied by father. It's like, man, what a drag, what a home life is this. But those names were indicative. Now God says, say to them, my people. And mercy is shown. In the Hebrew language, there's an interesting uh, feature. Whenever you want to take a negative and turn it into a positive, no, let's back up. Whenever you have a positive, you want to turn it into a negative, you add one word, lo, L-O. So if you want to say good, you say tov. And if you want to say no good, you say lo, tov. If you want to say my people, you say ami. If you want to say not my people, lo, ami. So those were the names of the kids, remember. Lo, Ruamah, no mercy. Lo, Ami, not my people. Now God simply, in Hebrew, drops the negative prefix and says, Ami. Ruhamah, mercy is shown. Now I, I point that out to you because how many times have you heard people accuse God of being the one that takes all the fun out of life. Oh, I don't want to follow God because He's so negative. He, he tries to make people into people that have no fun. He wants to take all the joy out of life. The opposite is the truth. It's sin that adds the negative prefix that causes God to judge. God's all about dropping the negative prefix, all about taking the low out and extending love and grace and joy and mercy. So I'm pointing this out to you because here you have something in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to take a negative and turn it into a positive. And again, I bring that out because a lot of people not only accuse God of taking all the fun out of life, they'll say, well, the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the New Testament. Yeah, the God of the Old Testament's a big, mean ogre. The God of the New Testament's full of grace and mercy. Here's the God of the Old Testament saying, I'm going to make those who are not my people, I'm going to drop the negative and make them my people. I'll take all of the unmerciful and make it merciful. This is the God of the Old Testament who is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. So mercy. Now we didn't get into it last week, but 
Mercy has two relatives. And you'll find them in the Bible interacting with each other. Its first relative is grace. Its second relative is justice. Justice, mercy, and grace. And you'll find them interacting throughout the Bible. Quick definition. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy and grace have nothing to do with fairness. Justice is fairness. It's getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And there is a difference. If you go down the street and you speed and an officer pulls you over and you're doing 35 miles over the speed limit, if he gives you a ticket, that's fair. You don't like it, but it's fair. It's just. And isn't it funny how we want justice for everybody else but mercy for ourselves, right? I can't believe that cop has nothing better to do than pull people like me over. Yet if somebody speeds by you, where's the cops? Just, I demand justice. Yeah, for others. But let's say, let's say you get a ticket. That's fair. But what if the officer is kind and says, you know what, you were doing a little bit over the speed limit, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm just going to warn you. That's mercy. That's not getting what you deserve. You deserve a ticket, you don't get it. Grace is even more than that. Grace is where you deserve a ticket. The police officer writes it up. And then as he hands it to you, he pulls it back and he goes, you know what, I'm going to pay the fine. And I'd like to invite you out to dinner. (laughs) Ain't never going to happen, okay? (laughs) But that would be grace. That would be grace. Now, they're related and these relatives had a family reunion at the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, all three of those attributes occurred. Justice was served when Jesus died on the cross. And here's how. God took all of our sins and dumped it on the body of Jesus Christ and He suffered what we deserve. Because God can't wink at sin. He has to judge it. So He judged it all on Jesus. Justice was served at the cross. Number two, mercy was extended at the cross. Because by that one act of justice, now God doesn't have to give us what we deserve, which is eternal hell. That's what we deserve. So never pray, God, just give me what I deserve. You don't want that. Because of the cross, God says, I won't punish you eternally. I've already put all the punishment on Jesus, so He gives you mercy. Number three, grace is extended also at the cross. Unmerited, undeserved, lavished favor and all that comes with being a child of God is met together perfectly at the cross. At the cross you might say, God paid your ticket and made you His. So here's God's people, the children of Israel who have sinned and God is going to talk about justice with them as well as mercy. Verse 2. Bring charges against your mother, the Lord says. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Now, please do not confuse, and we might have even mentioned it last week, don't confuse what some people do confuse with the nation of Israel 
and the church. There's a big difference between the wife of Jehovah and the bride of Christ. Israel is called the wife of Jehovah or the wife of Yahweh in the Old Testament. The church is called in the New Testament the virgin bride of Christ. We're talking about a very different entity than the church here. So you can't commingle the two and say, well, since Israel failed, now all of the promises of God go to the church and not Israel. They're treated completely different in the scriptures. Lest I strip her naked, verse 3, and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. Now let's humanize this. Because Hosea, the prophet, the broken-hearted prophet, was married to a hard-hearted woman. And that was a picture, wasn't it? Of a tender-hearted God who was dealing with a broken-hearted or you might say also a hard-hearted people or a wander-hearted people. They, they were wandering away from him at every chance they could. But let's humanize this. Picture Hosea the prophet going home one night and he sees Lo Amy over in the corner weeping and crying because mom left. Gomer's gone. And Jezreel and Lo Ruamah are just watching. And the prophet comes home and mom's gone. His wife is gone. And so this prophet has a broken heart. The Lord wanted Hosea to not only hear what it was like, but to feel what it was like to have your heart broken by somebody you deeply love. Then he could empathize more. Then he would be a more effective minister, a more effective prophet. Because his experiences would shape him all the more. Did you know that the Greeks used to think that the gods were unfeeling, apathetic, aloof, and completely detached from all human activity? And so they coined a phrase, apatheia theos, the apathy of the gods. They're apathetic. They don't care. They're in their own little world. So if you were growing up in a Greek household, you would think of any deity as completely aloof and totally detached. Here's an example from some of the Greek mythologies. There was a god in the pantheon of Greece called Prometheus. Prometheus one day got an emotion, which gods don't get. He got an emotion toward human beings. He felt sorry for people on the earth because in some cases they were cold and they needed something to warm them up. So he gave fire as a gift to humans out of kindness. When Zeus, the chief of the gods, found out what Prometheus had done, he took and chained Prometheus to a rock island in the middle of the Adriatic Sea and commanded vultures to pick out its liver. As punishment on this God who had feelings for mankind. How different is the God of the Bible portrayed as one who feels, as one who loves, as one who has a broken heart and is compassionate in a relationship with human beings? Very, very different. Jeremiah the prophet was another tender-hearted prophet. 
And God speaks through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2. And God says, I remember your youth and the kindness of your youth and the love of your engagement to me and how you wandered and chased after me in the wilderness. You loved me so much you pursued me. I miss that. I want that. God is now brokenhearted over the estranged relationship. Of course, Jesus portrayed a God who cares. He looked at Jerusalem and knew what was coming in 70 A.D. You know the story. And Jesus, as the city was spread out before him, did Jesus go, too bad, but they deserve it. I I warned them, tough toast. And the Bible says Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he wept. And he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you would have known the things that make for your peace and how often I wanted to gather your children together. But you were not willing. That's why Jesus said, If you've ever seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You see Jesus touching a leper. You see a God who has compassion on people. You see Jesus weeping over a city. You see a God who weeps with a broken-hearted Father's heart over the city and the nation that he loves. Verse 4, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. Now, you've got to get all of this together because God says he won't, but then he says he will. So there's a period of time when God says, I'm not going to be merciful, and then God is going to say, but I'm going to do something to change that. So I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Gomer left Hosea for materialism. She would go out and seek another man who would give gifts to her. So she would get stuff from them, material gifts. I don't want to follow this poor prophet around when these paramours of mine can give me so much more. So she was willing to leave her husband and go out on her husband with other relationships. She couldn't tell the difference, unfortunately, between cost and value. She was willing to leave something of great value for something that would be of great cost to others. And so she took these gifts. Now you're going to notice something in the next few verses that I'm bringing it out to you because I want you to spot it. You notice the word, therefore... So God says, you guys have run away from me. You've gone out on me just like Gomer did to Hosea. Therefore, and three times he's going to say it. Once in verse 6, once in verse 9, and once in verse 14. This is now God's reaction to their action. Their action of leaving God, here is God's reaction. And it's important to notice each one. Here's why. God's love is patient. God's love is unending. God's love is pursuing. God's love is persistent. But God's love is also disciplinary. Because God loves us, He didn't want us to just go down blindly a path that we have chosen that will end in our own destruction. He'll pursue, He'll chase, but He'll discipline us so we'll wake up. 
So look at verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. So first, therefore, is I'm going to make things difficult for you guys. I'm going to put roadblocks and obstructions right in the way of your pursuits. It's because I love you. Because you're going this way, therefore, I'm going to make it hard for you to get to those things. That's love. If you're a parent and your 13-year-old has a habit of stealing the car keys and going out, would you say, well, you know what? Um, We're all human beings and we're all free moral agents and you're going to grow up anyway and do what you want, so go ahead. That would be lame if you did that. If you love that child, you will restrict that child any way you can from doing what they want because you know the end will be destruction. I got a call from someone in California today whose neighbor, I believe, or in the general vicinity, took dad's car and went racing down one of the major boulevards there in Orange County at 100 miles an hour and smashed right into a tree and was killed instantly. Now, we don't know if dad said, take the car keys, but probably more than that, he decided to, on his own, steal the car keys. But the results were devastating. A life is lost. So God says, I know where you're going. And I'm going to put roadblocks up, obstacles to slow you down. She will chase her lovers, verse 7, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. You see, the reason for the therefore is to bring them to the then. Therefore, I'm putting up a roadblock. Then you're going to wake up and go, not a good way. So we have a principle. Problems push us toward God. Nobody likes problems. Nobody likes hardship. Nobody likes issues or suffering. And yet God uses them to wake us up, get our attention, and push us toward God. Then you're going to say, oh, I should have stayed with God. It was better there. Verse 8, for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Stop there for a minute. Every time Gomer went out on Hosea and found some new man her condition got worse and worse and worse. At first it was exciting because those new guys gave her gifts. But soon they saw through her scheme and they realized that her love was a false love, that she was only doing it for the gifts. And so she would leave that relationship and apparently go to another one and another one because the idea in chapter 2 is that she had many lovers. And so she degraded the marital relationship with Hosea on numerous occasions. Okay. Hosea could have thought, well, serves her right. You know, she went out on me. Now she's in trouble. Tough. I'm not going to do anything. But again, this whole thing was a pageant. And so the Lord will tell Hosea, even while she has run out on you and with another man, you go provide for her. 
So again, humanize it. Here's Hosea looking through the slums of the city. And he goes through one alleyway and he calls out for Gomer. And maybe he sees the man and says, Hey, do you know where a girl named Gomer is? Oh, yeah, she's down in that room down the street. So he goes down to the room and sees a guy. And maybe he said, Hey, are you the guy that's with a girl named Gomer? The guy would be visibly shaken and he would say, Well, well, who are you? He'd say, Well, I'm her husband. Then the guy get very nervous because he thinks the guy's going to beat him up. But instead, Hosea takes out money and gifts and says, Here, Gomer's with you. I want you to give these things to her. Tell her they're from me, her husband. I love her deeply, dearly, and I want to take care of her even while she's going out on me. And then it would seem that this guy took the gifts to Gomer but said, Hey, look what I brought you. I brought you more gifts. So he would take the credit while the source was from her husband. Now again, all of this is to portray the kind of love God has for us. Now think about that. God's love toward us is unreal. It's unfathomable. You know, this is illogical. I mean, who does that? Who has somebody go out on him and says, you know, I'm going to take care of her? It's otherworldly. It's just not logical. It's not human. That's why John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, behold is a King James word. You could just say, Hey, you want to check something out? Check out this kind of love. Because you'll never find it anywhere else than with God. It's this unconditional love. Again, we're reading from the Old Testament. This is the God of the Old Testament through the portrayal of Hosea demonstrating this love. Verse 9 brings us to the second, therefore, because you're doing this, therefore I'm going to do that. And he says, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. And I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. Since she's not willing to acknowledge the blessings, she's not willing to go back to me because of the blessings, now, phase two, step two, I'll take away the blessing. I'll expose her for who she is. I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales in which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry, and she went after her lovers But me she forgets, says the Lord. Let me give you a little insight into Baal worship. The chief god of the Babylonians and eventually the Canaanites was this god called Baal or Baal. Baal was the chief of them. And and Baal was responsible for rain, sun, your crops being productive, your family being successful. 
and it was a sensual type of worship. So there were groves of trees and sometimes hills and symbols that were used for worship. And the worship of Baal consisted of usually men finding women prostitutes or women finding male prostitutes, and they would join themselves to these prostitutes. And while that act was going on, they would pray to Baal. Baal, as fertility, reproduction is taking place right now, make my crops and my family and my flocks to be resplendent and to be lavish. It was, it was all a prayer based on this false worship system. So, what God is saying is, I'm going to put an end to this. There comes a point, God says, if I continue to just show you mercy and grace and bless you and don't put a stop to this, now I'm enabling you. So I'm going to put a stop to it. Why? Because I want to discipline you. I want you to run back into my arms. I want to show you that right now I'm doing this to you, pointing my finger, but I'd rather do this. But you're not willing to get the embrace, so I'm going to make it very difficult for you. Well, story of the prodigal son, isn't it? He gets his inheritance, he runs off with it, spends all the money, and one day he comes to himself and goes, you know what? I sure had it a lot better back at Dad's. I've had the fill of the world. I've spent all my money. Nothing. So he went back, as the son should, into the arms of his father. Now, it could be that tonight I'm talking directly to a situation you're involved in. It could be that at this very moment you're feeling burdened in your own heart over some sin, over some habit, over some struggle you've had. And you're feeling that burden and you're feeling the pain. And the Lord might be saying to you what He said to the Ephesians. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do those first works over again. And God is trying to woo you back to Himself to a close, humble relationship. Well, there's another therefore. Let's look at it in verse 14. And this is an interesting therefore. It's an interesting segue. Look at it. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. Well, this is a very different therefore than the first two, isn't it? The first one is, I'm going to make it hard by putting roadblocks up. Second one is, I'm going to expose you and you're not going to get the stuff that I've given you. Now God says, I'm going to allure you out in the wilderness and I'm just going to pour my grace upon you. Speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. You know, you start reading that first part of that one last therefore God says I'm going to allure her out into the wilderness and you're thinking uh oh here goes the hammer's going to drop any moment as if God's going to say I'm going to lure you out in the desert and I'm going to just punch you out away from everybody else it's just you and me I'm going to beat you to smithereens but no God says, I'm going to lure you out in the wilderness and lavish my comfort and grace upon you my love not only Mercy, 
but grace. Now it says the valley of Achor. It's mentioned three times in the Bible. It means the valley of trouble. And some of you may remember back to Joshua chapter 7 when there was a guy by the name of Achan who stole some spoils after the battle of Jericho and kept them for himself and he lied and he was found out. And they called that place the Valley of Achor or Trouble because this guy Achan troubled the whole group of Israel. What did they do to him? They stoned him. What's the punishment for adultery? Stoning. So God says what you deserve is the same kind of punishment Achan got in the Valley of Trouble. not going to do that. I'm going to take you out to the wilderness where it's just you and me again like a honeymoon. And I'm going to speak comfort to her. And verse 15, I would see as the key verse of chapter 2, I will give her her vineyards from there. I'll give back what you've lost. And the valley of Achor is a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. There is a principle right here that emerges and is beautifully stated in Romans chapter 5. As soon as I say it, you'll remember it. Paul says, wherever sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Or a better translation, grace overflowed. In other words, you can never erect a dam of sin so high that the waters of grace can't overflow it and flood the valley. When sin reaches its high watermark, God's grace is there to even cover that. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me master. Some of you might have translations that say, you will call me ishi, which is Hebrew for my husband, and no longer call me my master, or baali. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Now let me unpack the meaning of that. It's important. And unless it's unpacked, you'll just pass it by. God says, you're going to give me the name, my husband, Ishi. You're not going to call me Baali anymore. Here's the meaning. The problem with the children of Israel isn't that they just worshipped other gods, but rather they reduced God to the level of other gods. That was the problem. We call it syncretism. Blending false worship systems with the true worship of the true God. So what they did is they said, God, Yahweh, is one of many deities. Balim is the Hebrew, plural. He's one of many masters. So they reduced the sovereign, unique place of God and brought him to the level of other gods. It's not that dissimilar from what has happened in India when the Catholic Church hundreds of years ago went into that country. The Hindus embraced Catholicism in a very unique way because, as you know, Hindus worship millions of gods. They thought, great, we just have a few more. So we've got Krishna and all of our gods and goddesses in our pantheon of Hinduism. Now we'll add St. Jude and St. Joseph and Jesus and Mary and a few others. And so even God, Jesus, was reduced to the level of all of the other gods in the Hindu pantheon. That's what they were doing in the Old Testament. And God says, oh, no, you don't get it. First commandment, I'm the Lord your God, and you'll have no other gods 
besides me or before me. He's unique. They reduce God to the level of just another Baal instead of the unique God. But God predicts that they'll get out of that. They'll turn back to him. And in that day, I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. Now, I think this has a millennial implication. I think that the prophet is going beyond the immediate restoration of Israel all the way into the millennium. And you probably know that scriptures like Isaiah 35, Isaiah 2, and Isaiah chapter 11 all predict a coming time on the earth when nature will be tamed and there will be a restoration very similar to the days of the Garden of Eden. All of that is predicted by the prophets. And Isaiah was a contemporary down south in Jerusalem at the very time Hosea is up north. But he's saying some similar kinds of things. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And a nursing child shall play by a cobra's hole, and a weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. It's the same sort of idea that Hosea is also predicting in the final restoration when God lavishes mercy and grace on Israel in the latter times. Can you imagine? You won't ever need a zoo in the millennium. All the animals will be tamed. No cages needed. A few years ago, I was in Africa, and we had an afternoon off, and we got in a guy's truck, and we went through a beautiful part of the countryside of Kenya. And we happened by a family of lions. We got pretty close, and I had my camera, and I rolled down my window. And the guy said, stop and roll it back up. Because I'm rolling it down, and I'm kind of climbing out the window to take a picture of the lion. And the guy just said, this isn't the millennium yet. These lions will attack you and kill you. So I quickly rolled the window back up. Because I was just a stupid tourist who was almost eaten. I will betroth you to me forever, verse 19. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. And there the word betroth means to court. Or listen to this, to woo like a virgin. God is saying, you've gone out on me. You've committed adultery. I'm going to woo you and treat you like you never sinned. I'm going to bring you back as if it never happened. I'll woo you like a virgin. I'll betroth you to me. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. You see those two verses, verse 19 and 20? These two verses are recited even today by the Orthodox Jews as they wrap the leather phylacteries around the middle finger of their left hand and up their arm. They repeat these verses. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. Because even the Jew to this day understands that at the very heart of God in his character and nature, he wants a relationship with people. A personal, intimate relationship. And I hope that's what you want. I hope that more than anything, you have a desire to be as close to God 
as you possibly can. I, I remember when my wife was in a group called Youth with a Mission. We were just, we knew each other at the time. We weren't, weren't officially dating at the time. But she told me of something she did one night alone when she was at a YWAM base. She said, nobody was there, and I just really wanted a time alone with the Lord, so I cooked the Lord a meal, she said. And then I honestly thought over the phone, God, that's goofy. You don't cook God a meal. He's not going to eat it. She said, and then I, I set the table so nicely, and I lit little candles and I had a nice place setting. And I just sat there and as I ate, I just talked to God as if He was sitting having a meal with me. Then I got really convicted. Because I thought, here's a woman who so loves the Lord that she wants such an intimate relation that that's the most important one she could spend the evening with. Well, when she came back from where she was with YWAM, she was in Hawaii at the time, she came back to the mainland to California, we started dating again. I picked her up at the airport, had a rose for her, was playing Mr. Suave Romantique, and I took her home. And a few days later, I thought I was winning her over, and I said one night to her, I said, Lenya, I love you. Now, I'm expecting to hear, oh, I love you too. But it didn't happen that way. Here's the real truth. And I'm still scarred to this day. No, I'm just kidding. I said, Lenya, I love you. And she looked at me and she said, thank you. (laughs) What is thank you? Where's the I love you? She didn't say that. Thank you. And I went away going, oh, that was so lame. I bombed tonight. (laughs) And the next day was miserable. I got up in the morning. I went to work, had several cups of coffee, thought about it all night. The afternoon she called me. Skip, this is Lenya. I just want to tell you I love you too. But I didn't want to tell you last night until I asked God if I had permission to say that I love you because He's my Father and I don't want to commit my love to anybody unless He releases that. And I thought, okay, i got to marry this gal. (laughs) Here's somebody who so loves God that every other human love pales in comparison. And I further wanted that same kind of relationship that she had. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they will answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. Now, what is that structure all about in verse 21 and 22? Basically this, Israel, that will be sown in the land, that's what Jezreel means, is going to cry out to the grain and the oil and the new wine, crying out, hey, come to us. We need provision. Supply our needs. The grain, the oil, and the new wine will call out to the earth. Hey, earth, nourish us. We need to grow. The earth will call out to the rain, to the clouds, water us. And the clouds will call out to God, who's the first cause and the supplier, give us the water that we need, the moisture. 
So it's sort of a picture of the hydrological cycle, but it's actually a theological cycle because it's God's love that provides all of that on the earth for mankind's benefit, and in particular here for Israel. So this is the mercy of God all the way from God allowing them to go their own way and then God bringing them back. Now it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I am discovering that one of the reasons Christians are reluctant to absolutely surrender to God and go God's way and live obediently, one of the big reasons, they've forgotten the mercies of God. Paul said, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, And if we start forgetting all of the ways God has been good to us and lavished us with love and blessed us and been merciful, we start thinking, he's not doing this right and that right, and I deserve this and I want that. And we start forgetting how merciful he is and we'll hold back. But the more you discover how merciful God has been and gracious, you're going to go, oh, it only makes logical sense that I'm going to present my body as a living sacrifice. Okay, we have three minutes And that's okay, because look at chapter 3. Look how short it is. There's only five verses in it. (laughs) And I'd like to read it, talk about it just briefly, and leave it with you, because one commentator believes Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Because it speaks about the greatest act of love in the Bible. It's the story of redemption. You know what redemption means? It means to set a slave free by paying the price for freedom. I'll pay for the freedom, and you as a slave can go free. So, then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. These were little cakes used in sacrifices of the Canaanites. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver, one and a half homers of barley. Boy, that's not very much because the going rate for a common female slave was 30 pieces of silver. You wonder how much Jesus was betrayed for? For the price of a common slave. But you see what he's paying? 15 shekels. She's not even worth, at this point, the price of a common slave. The price is paid. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days. There's that phrase the second time, many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Briefly, this is one of the great prophetic pronouncements of the Bible. especially in that little term, many days. It's an unusual term because if you know anything about prophecy, God is usually very precise, not ambiguous. Here he's ambiguous. 
You know, Israel was out of the land a total of three times. And uh, the Lord, in the first two times, told them exactly, precisely, how long it would be. Abraham said, well, your descendants are going to have to leave this land and go into Egypt for 430 years. Then I'm going to bring them out with a strong hand. They went to Egypt, went into the promised land, 430 years later. They were kicked out again, went into Babylonian captivity. God said, they're going to be out of the land how many years? 70 years. Daniel was reading Jeremiah and said, wow, that time's almost up. We're about ready to go back. So God was very precise, but here he's ambiguous. He just says, they're going to be without king or prince many days. Well, it has been many days. In fact, there has been no king ruling over Judah since King Hezekiah. And sometime we'll tell you why. It's really the answer is found in Jeremiah 22. A blood curse was put on the royal line of David, and that line ceased when King Hezekiah had his eyes put out by the king of Babylon. Since King Zedekiah, there has been no one to occupy the throne of David or to rule in Judah. Now, Jesus Christ did come as the king of the Jews. He was rejected, came into his own. His own received him not. One day, Jesus will come back to occupy the throne of David and rule from there, and the many days will be over. But it just says, many days. For 2,000 years, up until May 14th of 1948, Israel was out of the land. They've regathered in the land, but there's no one occupying the throne of David. The many days are still going on. What has God been doing in all those many days? Saving a lot of people. Getting a Gentile bride. Romans chapter 10, verse 25. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the full number of Gentiles be come in. So God is dealing with non-Jews, and when the last Gentile says, I receive Christ, God will again turn the prophetic calendar toward the Jews. The many days will be coming to a close, and He will come to rule and reign from Jerusalem. So, so, if you're one of the last holdouts, You've heard the gospel and you said, oh, I don't want to do it. And you're like, maybe that last person that will be the last number of the Gentiles before the rapture of the church. And you're just kind of sitting there, arms crossed, holding out, not going to do it. Because we want to get out of here and get the show on the road. In, In Jerusalem, there is... A kingless throne, the throne of David, hasn't been occupied for many days. In heaven there is a throneless king. And when the throneless king and the kingless throne come together, the world will be as it should be. That's the coming age. But I want you just to walk away with that relational aspect, okay? I will betroth you to myself. I'll woo you. That's the heart of God towards you tonight. God doesn't want to wound you. He wants to woo you. But some people won't let God woo them. 
So God has to get their attention. And He knows how to do it. But any wounding or blows that you might feel from God are blows of love. Wounds of love. Because He wants you back in His hand to do His will for His glory because He knows that's where you'll be the happiest and most fulfilled and that's where He'll get all the glory. On my wedding day, probably on yours, you made vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, till death do us part. And you weren't expecting that to be anytime soon. You made a commitment, a covenant. You gave your life to Christ, and in effect, you made a commitment, you made a covenant. I take you as my husband. I'm part of the bride. Let's have a relationship of closeness and intimacy and warmth. And anything less is not fulfilling God's plan. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for these two glorious chapters. And the last couple of weeks, the three that form a solid unit of how relationship between God and man is to be formed. Father, I pray for anyone who has come tonight who doesn't personally know you, but is yearning to have a relationship with you. To know that they who were once not your people can become your people. They who once had no mercy extended but only justice up to this point would be lavished with mercy and experience your grace. It's our prayer, Father, that you bring them to know you tonight. And for those who might have been wandering, who have gone out on God and followed another pursuit, another God, another goal other than you, that tonight would be a time where priorities are made right. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.